today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series by looking at the Catholic Church in general terms. Over the last few episodes, we've identified some concerns about the Church. Today, we'll look at the attributes of the Church, or what the Church needs to have in order to be real and believable. So does the Catholic Church fit all the criteria for believability? You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to as well as all the resources we're posting, but if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. So now let's join Father William McGilvery for episode number 27 of our apologetic series here on the SSPX podcast. McGilvery, it is great to have you back. How are you doing? Very well, thanks, Andrew. And yourself? Uh, very well. We were just chatting. It's uh, as we're recording this right now. I'm not sure exactly when this episode's coming out, but we're in the middle of an 18-day heat wave over 110 every day. Oh my goodness! So it's it's nice. And to make the recording sound good, the AC has to be off. And you had to turn your fan off too. So that's right. I can't uh, pretend to compete in terms of temperature here, but the humidity is pretty high. So um, oh. <laughs> we're uncomfortable yeah. on both sides. I think. <laughs> Well, we'll we'll need to uh, make sure it's it's a great episode then, since Absolutely. since we're doing all this. <laughs> <laughs> well, Father, we've spent the last five five or six weeks going through problems in the church. We had Dr. Rao talk to us about Galileo, the bad popes, colonization, Inquisition, all that stuff. Now we're going to take our focus from that more towards the internal characteristics, attributes of the church. Um, you helped us with previous episodes some weeks back about the marks of the church. What's the difference between marks of the church and attributes of the church? Or if I'm jumping ahead and that's something you want to cover a little bit later, tell me to shut up and basically where, where do you want to start? Yep. That, so that is a good lead question. Um, though I should just uh, clarify that I think it's another priest who's taking care of the marks of the church for this series. It was. Um, right. It's true that we have spoken on <laughs> related topics in the past. For example, in the crisis series, I, I spoke a lot on infallibility, and that's going to be related to our, our present topic. Um, but but your question about so so it is a good question to start with because um, it's true that in the series we've already seen the marks of the church and the attributes um, are kind of like what's left over when you're studying the church and you've gone through the marks already. Well, what else is there? There are the attributes. Um, and it's a subject which is uh, not necessarily as well known, um, uh, especially, for example, um, the attribute of authority. Very few people know that there are um, three attributes of the church listed in the Baltimore Catechism, which are infallibility, uh, indefectibility, and authority. Um, everyone knows about the four marks, but but the attributes are not as well known, and they can often be the subject of um, of objections or of confusion, um, which will be helpful to clarify. So that's right. the idea. Yeah. Okay. So yes, you're right. My apologies to Father Hainos. He's the one who did the marks of the church. <laughs> of course. And I was just editing that earlier today, so I don't know how I did that. Anyway, okay. all right. So what is an attribute? What do we mean? What's the vocab 
basically definition of, of attribute, Father? Sure. So uh, obviously uh, a nominal definition of the term would be anything that you attribute to a certain subject. That would be an attribute. Um, and to attribute is to say that a certain you know, quality or perfection belongs to something. Um, and so basically an attribute is another term for a property of something, uh, something which characterizes a certain thing. Um, but especially what we would call an essential property, um, a property which always accompanies the thing so long as it is what it is. Um, that would be the, the most basic meaning of attribute. It's an essential property. Um, and then if you want to narrow the definition a bit more, um, sometimes you use the term attribute in a very specific sense to mean um, an essential and exclusive property which is to say um, a property which which is found everywhere where that thing is and nowhere else. Um, if, I, if I were to give examples um, completely unrelated to ecclesiology for both of these, these meanings, uh, perhaps starting with the, the, the broader one uh, of just any essential property, um, we might say, for example, that uh, water has certain properties, um, such as a high specific heat capacity, or um, you know, it has high cohesive and adhesive forces. Um, and none of these uh, properties on their own are unique to water. Um, you only start to describe something unique about it when you combine them all. Um, but each one of them, it's, it's essential it, uh, to that, that, that substance in particular. Water is always uh, this or that way. Um, so those would be examples of, of attributes or, or essential properties. Um, whereas something like being hot or cold um, or being clean or dirty, those are not attributes of water because they can vary. Some water is clean, some water is dirty, some is hot, some is cold. Um, mm. So all attributes are essential to the thing. They're always there with it. Um, and then some, as I said, are exclusive. Um, maybe a good example would be taken from mathematics. Uh, it's an exclusive property or attribute of even numbers that they are divisible, that you can divide them and get other whole numbers. Um, so all even numbers are divisible and only even numbers are. If you have something which is not even, it's not going to be divisible. Um, okay. So that's how we use the term in a broad sense and in a narrow sense. Okay, so I assume we're going to be able to look at the attributes of the church both in both senses, both in the broad sense and in the strict sense? Absolutely. So we will deal with both. We will deal with some attributes of the church um, which belong to her, but which could also be said of other things, other institutions, other social bodies. Um, and then there are some which are unique and exclusive to the Catholic Church. Okay. Um, and then, so so one one example of that would be um, an attribute that would belong exclusively to the church would be, uh, well, wouldn't be unity, Authority, for instance. Sure. Go ahead. I was uh, going to say it, the, an attribute wouldn't be unity. Maybe it would um, be. Well, I'll so let you talk. Unity. No, that's, that's it's a good question. So, um, <laughs> well, actually, before we even get to that, uh, we should say that um, when we deal with the church, we use attributes in a broad sense, a strict sense and an even more strict sense. Um, in the broad sense, an attribute would be any essential property of the church, and that would include even the four marks or notes, uh, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. So unity, which you just mentioned, that would be a, an attribute of the church in this most broad sense. Um, on the other hand, um, we very often use the term attributes to mean any of the essential properties of the church, which are not her four marks. 
because the marks tend to be treated uh, separately because of their special value for apologetics, for demonstrating the true church. And so what we end up doing is we, we talk about the marks and then everything else we kind of lump into the separate category of attributes, even though in a broad sense, the marks are also themselves attributes. But, but we use kind of like, for example, we might distinguish between man and animals, but at the same time, man is an animal. Um, he's sure. a rational animal. So it, it's kind of like that. Um, we can use attributes to refer to all of the essential properties of the church, which are not uh, any of the four marks. Um, and that would include things like uh, her visibility, um, her her status as a necessary means of salvation. Um, and then there are the three that are listed in the Baltimore Catechism, authority and infallibility and indefectibility, which we'll, we'll deal with soon. Um, but then if we want to go even further... And, and develop a more precise sense of, of, of this term attribute, um, we might apply it only um, to those qualities of the church, those essential properties, um, which uh, are exclusive to her. And um, that is to say they're not possessed by, by other things. Um, visibility, for example, is not exclusive to the Catholic Church. There are many other things in reality which are visible. Um, so it's an essential property, an attribute in a broad sense, but not, not uh, exclusive to the Church. And then um, not only exclusive, but also internal um, and invisible. Um, the, the marks of the Church are things that are themselves visible. Visibility, in fact, is, is in a sense a property of these four properties of the church. Um, every single mark is visible, um, just as the church herself is visible. Um, but these other attributes that we're going to talk about, the uh, authority that exists in the church, her infallibility and her indefectibility of themselves, these are interior uh, properties which are not visible of themselves. And that's the, the strictest uh, meaning of the term attribute of the church is, is an essential and exclusive property of the church, which is internal and of itself invisible. So, um, so the concept of authority or indefectibility, that is an internal thing. We can't see it like visibility, uh, but it is something that, that belongs itself to the church. Uh, that's correct. Um, now, as, as we will get into soon, um, the attributes are often closely tied to marks or to other visible qualities of the church. And so um, the fact that in the church there is um, true authority, that is to say that the Pope and bishops of the church govern um, in the name of Christ uh, with, with a kind of moral power that they have received from him, um, that is tied to the visible mark of apostolicity. Um, because if the Pope and bishops of today did not go back in continuous, uninterrupted succession to Christ and uh, St. Peter and the apostles, um, then uh, then that, that uh, chain of transmission of authority would have been broken. And so even the invisible attribute of authority would now be missing. Um, mm -hmm. So there's often a relation of dependence, um, either of attributes of the church upon her marks or conversely of the marks upon the attributes. Um, an example of that second um, kind of thing would be um, the dependence of the four marks upon the church's indefectibility. Um, the indefectibility of the church simply means that she cannot cease to exist uh, nor undergo any kind of uh, substantial alteration. 
um, all the way until the end of time. And that, that guarantees that the church will always retain her four marks. Um, if the church were ever to lose one of her marks, she would no longer be the same church. Uh, and so she would have defected. Um, so we see that, for example, all four marks are dependent uh, for their conservation, for their continued existence upon the church's attribute of indefectibility. But conversely, certain attributes like authority are themselves dependent upon certain marks, like the transmission, the uninterrupted transmission of, of authority that we find in, in the church's mark of apostolicity. Mm -hmm. Does the catechism speak any more about these, these attributes? Yes, um, <laughs> I've already talked so much about them. It's about time to quote an authority. Um, and we do find an interesting, um, an interesting exposition of the three attributes of authority, uh, infallibility, and indefectibility in the Baltimore Catechism. Um, so this is to be found in, the, uh, in number three. So the Baltimore Catechism comes in different versions. Some are shorter, some are longer. The third one is the longest of the three. Um, and it's in question 517 um, and following that we find the treatment of the church's attributes. Um, I will, in fact, start with question 521, um, which explains, the answer to that question explains that both marks and attributes are necessary in the church, for the marks teach us its external or visible qualities, while the attributes teach us its internal or invisible qualities. It is easier to discover the marks than the attributes, for it is easier to see that the church is one than that it is infallible, for example. Um, then the following question goes on to uh, list the three attributes that are treated there. Um, which I've already listed a few times now, authority, infallibility, and indefectibility. And then the following questions define briefly each of those three. Um, so by the authority of the church, I mean the right and power which the Pope and the bishops, as the successors of the apostles, have to teach and to govern the faithful. By the infallibility of the church, I mean that the church cannot err when it teaches a doctrine of faith or morals. And by the indefectibility of the church, I mean that the church, as Christ found it, will last until the end of time. Okay. So let's look back at this idea of the visibility of the church. Um, how do we understand? I mean, we know that the church is visible, but it also seems that there are certain parts of it that are invisible because the church is the communion of the saints. We can't see all the saints. So what do we mean when we say that the church is visible, Father? Sure. Um, okay. Well, first of all, um, we have to, maybe it's best to establish that the church is visible and then clarify in what sense the church is. Um, visibility is, in fact, another one of the attributes that we have to talk about, uh, not in the strictest sense uh, of the term, but in, in a broader sense. So um, visibility is not one of the four marks, but it is an essential property of the church. Um, and uh, it's also a property of, of each of the four marks. Um, that the church is visible um, is at least a theological certainty, um, if not a truth of faith. And um, this is to be seen in certain Old Testament prophecies. For example, um, in the, the prophecy of Isaiah, the church is depicted as a mountain built upon the mountains, which is visible to all. 
Um, so we read there, In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be prepared on the top of mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall come forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Um, so the, the mountain of the house of the Lord is is a prophetical description of the church, which is prepared on top of the mountains and everyone, uh, all nations shall flow into it. So in order for the whole world to converge and flow, uh, converge upon and flow into the, the Catholic church, um, or the church of Christ, that church needs to be visible. Um, so visibility, a certain visibility of the church is very clear from, from that old Testament prophecy and other, certain other ones as well. Um, that the church is visible also appears from certain parables of our Lord. Um, for example, where he describes um, the kingdom of heaven as being as as com being composed of a mixture of good and bad men, um, like we find, for example, in in the parable of the net, um, which is cast into the sea and then which gathers up both good fish and bad fish, um, and that's a, a figure of the church on earth. Um, which embraces in its in its uh, boundaries within its limits both good and bad men, um, and the only way that that would happen is that they be able to associate with one another in some way. Um, for them to associate um, and be mixed together, there has to be uh, they have to be able to recognize one another and be somehow united in one society. Um, so so we learn kind of indirectly from from these New Testament parables that the church must be. A visible society, um, and it's not just an invisible um, assembly of the just or of the predestined. Um, so, all of that is to um, oh, and I suppose uh, just kind of as a third proof or something supplementary to what has already been said, um, the the fact that the church is presented to us as something necessary for salvation, it re requires us to be able to recognize the church and enter it. If the church were not visible. The commands to enter Christ's church um, would be an, an order to do something which is impossible, but God does not command the impossible. So these sure. are all reasons for saying that the church is visible. But as you said, we may need to be a little bit more specific about in what sense the church is visible. But um, right. I saw you were about to say something. Um, I don't well, want I was just going to gonna say, because there are parts of the church that are invisible. I was just going to follow up on that there. Sure. Yes, there are visible parts, but there are also invisible parts too. So it's both visible and invisible. Yes. Uh, so the, <laughs> the language of theology, um, is that the church is, um, formally, but inadequately visible. Um, and I'll explain that terminology in a moment, especially the term inadequately. It's, uh, that's kind of an awkward transliteration of the Latin term inadequate, which means not completely, not to the fullest extent possible. Um, so uh, we have to distinguish various kinds of visibility. Um, first of all, we can talk about a kind of material visibility of the church, which simply means um, that the church can be recognized as a society of men, just like any other society. So, uh, you know, we could say that the United States of America is a visible society. Um, Canada is a visible society. Um, all of these are visible. 
Um, it is easy to define uh, their geographical boundaries, to uh, say who is a member of, of that society or not. Um, and so the church as well, the Church of Christ, has that kind of visibility. Uh, that is to say, it can be recognized as a definite society. Um, you know, the, we're speaking of concretely of the Catholic Church, and and so you know she she registers properties in her name. Um, she has a she she the, no nobody has any difficulty um, recognizing the mere fact of of her existence. Um, but that is not yet the same thing as what we call formal visibility. Um, that is basically. Um, the visibility of Christ's church, not as any society whatsoever, but specifically as that society which was founded by Jesus Christ, um, which is divinely established um, and is the Ark of Salvation. Um, that's what we call formal visibility. Um, and the texts um, that I quoted from the Old and New Testaments and that, that argument of reason all would demonstrate that the church is indeed formally visible um, and not just materially visible. Um, that is, she can be distinguished from other societies as being the unique one founded by Jesus Christ. Um, however, all of that is not to say that the church is adequately visible. That is, that every single reality which is encompassed by the church, which she contains in herself, is something that can be seen by the eyes um, or even known by, by natural reason. Um, there are elements within the church, there are realities that can be known by faith alone. Um, and one way of talking about this twofold aspect of the church, the visible and the invisible aspect of the church, um, is, is, um, to speak of her body and her soul. Um, uh -huh. so the body of the church is said to be, um, all of the external visible aspects, uh, in particular, uh, the public profession, um, of one in the same faith, the um, the common use of the same mass and sacraments, um, and the submission of all the members of the the church to the same governing authority, the pope and the bishops in union with them, um, all of those uh, bonds of unity are visible of their very nature, um, and so the this kind of visible um, social order constitutes what we call the body of the church. Um, on the other hand, there are also in the church many things, many realities which are strictly supernatural and invisible. Um, that would include not only the guidance of the Holy Ghost, um, who, who moves the church as a kind of external uh, principle or source of vitality. And for that reason, the Holy Ghost himself is, is often called the soul of the church. Um, but also um, all of the gifts of uh, grace, of of the various virtues um, that 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 God, that the Holy Ghost pours into the souls of the members of the church, um, and which, let's say, if if the church is one in faith, one in government, that's thanks in great measure to the virtue of faith, which resides in the soul of um, of of the members of the church, at least in in principle, um, as well as the other virtues, the virtue of charity, which prevents schisms, for example. Um, there are these internal qualities um, which are which are supernatural and which can cannot be seen or perceived by natural reason, um, which are known by faith alone. Um, and we often call that that ensemble of all these different um, spiritual gifts. Um, the, the soul of the church, 
So we distinguish a body and a soul, and the soul is the invisible aspect, the body is the visible aspect. That's a great analogy because we we understand what that means in our in ourselves. So we can understand a little little bit better that there is this visible part, invisible part, uh, and it doesn't just because there isn't an, an invisible part doesn't take away from its visibility. Absolutely, it would be like saying that I'm invisible because part of me, my soul, is invisible. That would right. be rather silly. And in fact, even the invisible part becomes known through the part which is visible. Because how do you know that I have a soul? Um, you don't see it, but you see the effects of the soul um, in the fact that it, it moves my body in a way which, uh, you know, hopefully gives the appearance of life. Uh, and so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you're able to, to perceive that I'm alive and that therefore there is inside of me a, a principle of life, even if you don't see it directly. And it's like sure. that with the church, um, her, you know, these, these spiritual endowments that she possesses and, and all of her invisible aspects attributes, they, they aren't knowable directly uh, of themselves, but they become known through their effects upon the body of the church. Okay. So we've been, we've been talking about visibility and I think I maybe brought us to this point a little bit too quickly. The reason why we're talking about visibility and invisibility father, and correct me if I'm wrong, is because we want to look at each of the attributes and see that there's a visible aspect and an invisible aspect. Is that, is that the case? Well, um, that would certainly be true of the marks of the church. And, and so this discussion of visibility and in invisibility um, does help to throw light on that subject. Um, I think that probably when you covered the marks of the church with Father Hinos, uh, I believe it was, um, that would have been considering them um, exclusively uh, on their visible side. Um, but um, just as the church herself in her essence, she is partly visible and partly invisible that we speak of the body and of the soul of the church. So also in her, in her various properties or, or, um, attributes in the broad sense, um, those themselves are often, um, partly visible and partly invisible. Um, and so the marks, when we use them for the purpose of apologetics, we speak about the exterior aspect, which is, which is known to all. Um, but, but that exterior part, pardon me, that exterior aspect is rooted in an interior principle, um, which is often tied to, or sometimes even is one of the attributes that we might end up talking about. Um, so for example, the unity of the church, um, the fact that all the members of the church profess one faith and participate in the same sacred rites and, and obey the same authority, as I was mentioning earlier. Um, so that that's an external fact that can be seen, um, that can be evaluated in a scientific or experimental way to some extent. Um, but it's, it's source, it's origin, um, is to be found in the virtues of faith and charity, um, which belong rather to the soul of the church, to her invisible aspect. Um, once again, returning to the mark of apostolicity, um, there you have an external, uh, and visible aspect, uh, aspect of that, that, um, of that mark of the church, which is to say, um, you can observe that you have an uninterrupted succession of popes, for example, and then of, of bishops who are in communion with the various popes, going all the way back to St. Peter. Um, that's an external fact that, that is visible, 
Um, and nevertheless, um, that has happened um, only thanks to certain invisible attributes of the church, such as um, her indefectibility, the promise of Christ to assist his church to ensure that she never uh, is destroyed or never changes substantially, um, as well as um, the, the attribute of authority. Um, that is to say that it's not a, a merely external succession of rulers, but that um, through that succession, there is conveyed down to the present day the same authority with which the apostles governed um, the, the early church. So there is this kind of uh, um, twofold aspect, even to the marks of the church themselves. There is their their exterior invisible aspect, and then there's, there's their root um, in the in the essence itself of the church. Um, and, and in their root, uh, they are um, invisible properties, could say, which are known okay. by faith and not, not by reason. Um, sure. Yeah. So that is the, that's the relationship between, between the marks and the attributes. Um, I'm going to ask you kind of the, just the, a basic question. Why, why is it important to, to study the attributes? What's the purpose of doing this yeah. whole episode? Sure. Uh, great question. So, um, in fact, the study of the attributes as invisible properties of the church, it's usually not a part of apologetics. It's rather a part of what we call um, ecclesiology or the theology of the church. Um, nevertheless, the two disciplines are complementary. Um, apologetics leads us to um, embrace the faith. And once we have the faith, we can start to um, do theology and to derive conclusions um, uh, based upon truths of faith. And we can, as regards the church, we can start to examine her, her essence in the light of faith and deduce some of her invisible properties. Um, so in fact, the study of, of the attributes belongs principally to theology and not to apologetics. However, um, there is this general tendency of uh, disciplines to, to complement one another. And so having studied the attributes, we can go back to the marks of the church um, with a, a deeper and fuller comprehension of um, it's, it's one thing to establish the fact that, for example, the church is one or the church is, is uh, universal, um, you know, encompassing all nations, all, all peoples, all times. But once you've understood uh, the the nature of the church and her, her interior attributes, you can understand why it is or how it is that the church has been able to, um, you know, accomplish the things that we see exteriorly, how it is that the church has been able to um, maintain a unity uh, among uh, people of all different cultures and and backgrounds, um, how the church has been able to spread to all the corners of the earth. Um, you know, what is it that explains her her fecundity, her ability to grow and flourish in spite of persecution? All of that, um, you know, we, uh, from the standpoint of apologetics, we first establish the fact and we say this must have some divine origin. This must um, come from a special assistance of, of God. There's no other possible explanation. Um, and that leads us to to make an act of faith in the church um, and her teachings. Um, but then having done that um, and having studied the church from the standpoint of, of from the perspective of the faith, uh, as I, I'm trying to explain, we can go back to the attributes and say, oh, or, or to the to the marks of the church, uh, rather, and say, oh, I understand now how it is that the church is that way, how she has managed to do that. Now it makes sense to me. Um, it's not just something that strikes me as as mysterious and requiring some some kind of divine explanation. But now I understand the mechanism by which God accomplishes this. Um, sure. 
So, so it leads to a deeper appreciation of the marks of the church. Um, but then secondly, um, for the purposes of apologetics, the attributes of the church often serve as what we call negative marks, which is to say that um, it's not easy to demonstrate that they are there. In fact, often you can't. For example, you can't directly demonstrate that um, the, the church is, um, is indefectible from purely external criteria. The most that you might be able to demonstrate is that de facto, the church has not defected, has not changed substantially. Uh, same with infallibility. You might be able to demonstrate at most that you can't prove that the church has ever, you know, solemnly contradicted her her own teachings or something like that, or solemnly, uh, you know, erred from the doctrine of Christ. Um, you might be able to demonstrate that that hasn't happened, but you can't demonstrate directly that it can't happen, which is the meaning of of uh, infallibility. It's not just that the church has never erred, but that she can't err and will never. Uh, and same with indefectibility. Um, so that's why you can't, th these things don't serve as positive marks of the church. Um, you can't directly demonstrate them from external criteria, but they can serve as negative marks. That is to say, if you find a church which doesn't have one of these attributes, um, then you know it's not the true church of Christ. So if you find if you're looking at a church and you see that it has erred, or you're looking at a church and you see that it has changed substantially, then you know it's not the right church, <laughs> um, right? Because obviously a de, de facto um, error or a de, de, de facto substantial change is contrary to these properties, um, and so the basically um, when it comes to apologetics, we could do the exhaustive work of going through all the other churches besides the Catholic church and showing that they have erred or they have changed substantially. Um, that's not really the point here. The point is rather to, um, to prevent these attributes from being used against us um, by people who want to discredit the Catholic church. That is to say, they will say, you claim that the Catholic church is the church founded by Christ, but um, your church does not have um, this or that attribute. Your church is not infallible because look at these errors um, that you know the church authorities are teaching or look at this way in which the church has changed. Um, and therefore, uh, the Catholic church is lacking one or another of these essential properties and therefore it's not the true church of Christ. And so our interest in studying these attributes for apologetical purposes will be to know how to refute those objections. Right. It's kind of similar to what we were doing a few episodes back with Dr. Rao talking about the bad popes that we have had throughout history. We're, mm -hmm. we're kind of doing that. And again, you, you can't do apologetics perfectly in one linear order because some of it does circle back on each other. Um, yes. But that's, that's what you're talking about here. The, the negative notes of, of, uh, of, of these attributes. We're, yes. The, the burden of proof is on us to explain why these bad popes do not necessarily mean that the church has defected. Sure. I mean, given given that the the objection is brought against us, we have to uh, show how there's there's no contradiction between asserting on the one hand that the church possesses infallibility or indefectibility, and then on the other that that these historical events have occurred. Um, right. So it's mostly a, a defensive. Um, the interest is mostly to defend against um, possible or frequent objections. That's the idea. Okay. So let's then get into the actual study of the attributes. But before we do that. We need to look at the purpose of the church, or as you have in your notes here, the four causes of the church. 
Sure. Um, so I think that will <laughs> help us to establish the basis for talking about the church's properties um, or, or attributes, because first of all, we have to understand that the church herself um, is like any other society, um, the result of four different kinds of causes. And this is going back to Aristotle, um, who, you know, I think he gives perhaps the example of a statue, um, which it consists of a material cause. There's the marble out of which it's made. And then there's a formal cause, which is the uh, form or figure of the the person who is sculpted into the statue. That makes it to be a statue of uh, Jupiter or Apollo or whatever it may be. Um, and then there's the efficient cause, that is to say the sculptor, the one who, who uh, puts the form into the matter. And then there's the final cause, which is to be a work of art, to uh, represent someone, to whatever it may be. Um, so... In fact, every every material reality um, necessarily has these four causes. Um, when you speak of human society, is there no exception? Every society has a material cause, which is to say its members. It has a, uh, well, I'll, I'll wait for the formal cause because that's more complicated. So it has a material cause, which is the members. It has a, um, it has an efficient cause, um, which is to say the person who founded this society, who established it with its its constitution and laws, um, and then uh, the, the authority which continues to govern it. Um, the authority is like the internal efficient cause, uh, almost like the soul um, within a, a living creature, which, which um, moves it uh, towards its goal, the goal for which it exists, which is the final cause. Um, so every society has a final cause, which is the purpose for which uh, it exists and towards which the authority or efficient cause directs the activity of the members or material cause. Um, and the final cause of, to give some examples, uh, the, the final cause of a family would be um, the procreation and education of children and the mutual help of the spouses. That's the reason why families exist. Um, and so the all the um, commands which come from the authority of that society, from the father of the family, for example, um, their purpose is to direct the activity of the members of the family towards the accomplishment of that goal. Um, in civil society, the, the, the final cause is the uh, temporal common good. That is to say, the, all of the, to establish all the conditions which uh, are conducive to the flourishing of the members of that society. Um, you know, the, not only their material well-being, their their um, a, a sufficient a possession of sufficient goods necessary for life, liberty, property, um, but but also um, the good of virtue that they be educated, that they grow in intellectual, moral virtue, and and that they develop the arts. All of that belongs to the final cause of civil society. When we speak of the church herself, the church has a twofold final cause. Um, the remote final cause of the church, the reason why ultimately she exists, is to uh, lead all of her members to uh, eternal life, to bring them to save their souls. Um, but that is accomplished here and now through their sanctification. And so the sanctification of her members is her proximate final cause. Um, so we have, um, as I said, uh, the material cause, the efficient cause, which is the authority of the society, in this case, the Pope and bishops, um, the final cause, and then you have uh, the formal cause, which is what the thing is. 
Um, what is it that defines it, that characterizes it, that makes it to be what it is and nothing else? Um, and in the church, that formal cause is um, the, uh, the the triple social bond of the profession of one in the same faith, the use of the same sacraments, and submission to the same authority. Um, that, that triple unity is... Um, is accomplished and maintained thanks to the action of the of the hierarchy of those who are in authority, um, who direct the activity of all the members of the church, um, and and maintain that triple bond of unity, and that is for the sake of their sanctification and ultimately their salvation. Um, so so okay. that's briefly the four causes of the church. Um, I don't want to interrupt you though. I think you were going to say something, Andrew. No, I was going to say, so that's that's the four causes, but then we also mm-hmm. have the four marks, and we can start to see kind of a, a pattern emerge. We can see mm-hmm. start to see how they correlate to each other. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, you you could probably guess if you were ha- if you had the four marks of the church, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, and you had to correlate those to each of the four causes of the church. Um, some of them would be more more obvious than others, I think. Um, so, of course, the mark of holiness. Um, that would be associated with the final cause of the church, which is the sanctification and salvation of her members. Um, the mark of um, unity that we associate with the formal cause of the church, which is that triple bond, which unites all of the members, the bond of one in the same faith, worship and, and government. Um, the, the mark of apostolicity is related to the efficient cause of the church, that is to say, the authority which governs her. Um, because the church is apostolic, she, um, the, those who govern her today have the same authority which the apostles had. Um, and then finally, the note of Catholicity or universality, that's related to the uh, material cause of the church, her members. That is to say, she has members um, throughout the entire world um, of, of all nations, of all, um, you know, languages and so on. So, so there is this, uh, beautiful correlation between the four causes of the church and her four marks. Okay. So then can we look at each one of the attributes of the church in particular and kind of go through what each one means? Absolutely. Um, and as already mentioned, some of these attributes will, um, be related to one or another of the marks and even one or another, one or another of the causes of the church. Um, okay. So visibility, as I already mentioned, um, is something which applies to all four marks. Um, but, but we'll go through each of them. Um, and in fact, even before we speak of visibility, um, perhaps it's best just to list all of them uh, so that we know where we are and then go through them one by one. Um, so before even visibility, we speak of the unicity of the church, which is to say that there is only one church of Christ, not many. Um, then her necessity for salvation, that is to say that Christ did not establish the church as something optional, um, but membership in her is is a requirement and a, a necessary means of salvation. Um, she is visible. And then finally, we we arrive at the last three, which are the ones mentioned in the Baltimore Catechism, which are attributes in the strictest sense. That is to say, they are um, interior, interior, they are invisible, um, and they are exclusively the uh, property or the attributes of, of the Catholic Church, of the, of the true church. Um, so unicity, first of all, um, unicity sounds a lot like unity, 
which is a mark of the church, but this is different because unity signifies that a certain thing is undivided in itself. Um, you know, unity is is opposed to internal divisions. Um, if there were a part of the church which believed one set of doctrines and another which believed a totally different set, that would then obviously the church would not be one because there would be an internal division. Unicity is not the same thing as unity. Unicity um, means the absence of multiplication of a thing. That is, there is only one of it. Um, there aren't others. Uh, and so when we see that the church is unique, uh, that she has the attribute of unicity, this means that you can't find any other church besides the one that Christ founded, which would be the same kind of thing and which would accomplish the same uh, the, the, the same goals. Um when you want to save your soul, you're not confronted with a choice of many different churches. Uh, and then our Lord says, well, choose the one that you want. Pick one. Um, yeah. <laughs> pick one. Exactly. Um, no, it's not like that. Um, and how do we know this? Well, um, it's, it's evident from many passages of the gospel of the new Testament. Our Lord says, for example, to Simon Peter, thou art Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my, will build my church. He doesn't say I will build my churches. He says, my church. <laughs> um, elsewhere, he says, um, other sheep I have that are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. So it's very clear. Um, our Lord wanted his church to be one and to be unique. Um, we even find certain perhaps prophetic texts of the Old Testament, um, which are traditionally applied to the church and which signify her unicity. For example, in the Canticle of Canticles, one is my dove, my perfect one is but one. Um, so this is, um, I should also mention, as speaking of the Old Testament, um, that the church is understood to be prefigured by the Ark of Noah. Um, when God sent the flood upon the earth, there were not you know, two arcs, there were not five, there was one. <laughs> Um, right. Again, the chosen people, God didn't choose the Israelites and the Hittites or the Egyptians or some other people. God chose one. And so all of this is a prefigurement of the one true church, which our Lord founded and which is the unique ark of salvation. Okay. And we can see the, we can see this unicity, which I guess we could also call it uniqueness. Is that maybe a fair? Yes, that would be probably a, a little bit more of a comprehensible term. We're more used to, to saying that. Okay, so we could we we can see that in the Catholic Church compared to say the Protestant Church or churches because there's a mm -hmm. lot of those guys. There's one Catholic Church. Exactly. Um, of course, you know Protestants will try to get around this, and often you you hear Protestants speaking about uh, the Church, the Church of Christ. Um, but the the question there is, what do they mean by that? Um, and how do they arrive at at one unique Church when there are so many different Protestant denominations? Well, the kind of unity and unicity that they arrive at is one of abstraction. That is to say, um, they conceive for themselves in their mind this idea of a unique church of Christ, but they arrive at that conception by abstracting from all the very real differences that exist among the various Protestant denominations. And so their one and unique church of Christ is more a, a logical being, a, an abstract being that exists in the mind rather than a reality. Sure. Okay. So that's unicity. Next, we have necessity for salvation. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, which is indeed closely related to unicity, because if Christ 
established one single church and gave her all the means that are needed for salvation, and there's no other one like it, well, then it follows that if you want to save yourself, you have to, if you want to save your soul, you have to enter this church. Um, and we already saw uh, the figure in the Old Testament uh, of the Ark of Noah, um, which represents the church. Um and our Lord himself, when he sent his apostles to preach the gospel, what did he say? He said, you know, preach, preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations. Um, and that includes, of course, a corresponding obligation on the part of all nations, all people to become disciples of these apostles. Um, and since the apostles, you know, they, they had a certain authority um, that they exercised and then they communicated that authority to specific men who, who became their successors, that means that whatever church, whatever society um, represents the continuation of the work of the apostles, um, that's the society that everyone has to belong to. Uh, you have to become disciples of, of that society. Um, and our Lord is very explicit in saying that he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. Um, mm -hmm. To believe is not just to believe anything whatsoever or to believe your own opinions about what our Lord may have, have taught, but to believe specifically that which, um, you know, the living authority of the church says our Lord taught. Um, that authority which represents the continuation of the work of the apostles who were sent by Christ. Sure. The next one we have is is visibility, which we've talked about already in in uh, some respects. But basically, the church is visible. Yes, it has some invisible parts, but the church as a whole is a visible institution. Yes, um, that's correct. Um, most most of this, you're right. We have already treated of in, in sufficient detail, I suppose, um, and, and even the proof. We've already proved it from certain Old Testament prophecies and, and New Testament texts, the parables of our Lord. Um, what I could add is that um, it's just to point out the importance of the visibility of the church um, for her authority. Um, that is to say, so so these are two different attributes of the church. There's the attribute of authority and then the attribute of visibility, and they are linked because if the church were not visible, um, then authority would effectively be, be given to the church in vain. Um, because in yeah. order to, uh, for someone to exercise authority, they have to be recognizable as the authority. Um, and if, if the church is invisible, you don't know who belongs to it and therefore you don't know who exercises authority in it. Um, and, and the, the visibility of the church has been attacked, um, especially on this ground, because there are people who want to be able to legitimize not obeying the church's authorities. And so the way to do that is to say, well, actually, the church that Christ founded is an, an, an invisible assembly of the just or of the predestined. And those who are members of it are known to God alone. Um, mm -hmm. that, that's kind of a, a way of, of excusing oneself from the obligation to obey. Um, and this is something which, in fact, was held by, um, interestingly enough, by John Wycliffe, who was one of the uh, kind of predecessors of the Protestant Revolution. Um, so John Wycliffe, you can find a series of his propositions that were condemned by the church uh, in Denzinger. And um, one of his propositions is that no one is a civil master, no one is a prelate, no one is a bishop, as long as he is in mortal sin. Um, and he also says, if a bishop or priest is living in mortal sin, he does not ordain, nor consecrate, nor perform, nor baptize. Um, mm. So you see, he's he's setting up as a criterion for membership in, in the church and specifically for 
for possessing authority or spiritual power, um, the, a criterion is that a person be in a state of grace, which is, however, an invisible quality. So as soon as you yeah. say that, you've destroyed the invisibility of the church's hierarchy, and you no longer know, um, you know. Um, so even you don't you don't even know if you're baptized because the priest who baptized you was he in a state of grace or not. Um, you don't know if you're if you're a priest. You don't know if you've been validly ordained. Was your bishop in a state of grace when he ordained you? So we see we see how every attack upon the visibility of the church also undermines her other properties, um, her authority and and her spiritual powers. Um, you might say that you know the church has authority somewhere. There are spiritual powers somewhere, but you don't know if they're here and, and if here and now they're being exercised. So it becomes completely futile. And this is one of the reasons why the church has always said it doesn't matter about the, you know, whether the minister is good or bad, because, it, well, I mean, not only is it going to destroy the, the the visibility of the church and the authority of the church, but it's going to destroy the f- faithful's uh, concept of, of knowing that the church is there to serve them and and the the way in which they're going to be able to get their salvation. If I have to question whether Father McGilvery is a good guy or a bad guy, I'm, I'm just going to not go to confession or not go to mass because what's the point? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. All right. So then the next attribute then would be authority. That's correct. Uh, obviously we've already spoken a fair amount about this too. Um, but the Baltimore catechism, helpfully enough, gives us a definition. Authority is the power which one person has over another so as to be able to justly exact obedience. Um, By the authority of the church, I mean the right and power which the Pope and the bishops, as the successors of the apostles, have to teach and to govern the faithful. So um, we already mentioned that insofar as the transmission of, of this authority is a fact which can be you know, demonstrated in the books of history, this uh, belongs to the mark of apostolicity. But insofar as authority itself is an invisible quality, um, it's something which is known by faith, um, and it, it, it's properly speaking an attribute of the church and not a mark. Um, it's really an interesting concept though, because even when we speak of secular authority, like if we, if we consider, um, I don't know, like the, the mayor of a city or the president of the United States, um, you know, there's no visible difference in him, um, from the day before he's inaugurated and he steps into office. And then the the day after he's looks exactly the same. He talks the same way. He, there, there's no visible difference whatsoever. Um, and so all authority in fact is, is an invisible attribute, um, and uh, the, the, that, that goes without saying for the church herself. Um, but uh, what is really an object of faith is the divine character uh, of the authority of the church. That is to say um, that it's not just the authority that a civil ruler might have for temporal purposes, but that it's really an authority established by Christ himself for the salvation of and sanctification of the faithful. The... Um and, and authority is given to the church in this, like you said, in this, it's related to ap- ap- apostle. Man, I messed this up on the last ap- episodes too with Father Hanos. Uh, apostolicity, um, yes. because of because of this this transmission of authority. This is where we get the authority uh, from. It's not just given to uh, a priest or a bishop through holy. Uh, sorry, it's not just given to the priest or the bishop. Uh, because Christ gave it to him, it's given to him through the powers of 
uh, ordination and and a sharing of authority with the Pope, essentially, right? Uh, right. So yes, you're you're asking about the specific way in which authority is is transmitted from mm-hmm. um, one ger- generation to the next, so to speak. Um, and in fact, um, so we have to distinguish between the authority that the Pope has. Um, and the authority that the bishops of the church have, and then finally others who participate in their authority, like parish priests. Um, The authority of the Pope is in fact the only authority which is received directly from Jesus Christ, the invisible head of the church. Um, So the election of a new Pope is a necessary condition for him to receive his papal authority, but once that condition is fulfilled, the authority itself is directly communicated to him uh, from Jesus Christ. Um, okay. now the authority of the bishops, um, is communicated to them through the Pope, um, who is the one who appoints them to their position as, you know, the head of a, of a given diocese. Um, this is the, uh, the traditional concept of the way in which authority, uh, descends, uh, down the hierarchy. That is to say, it always comes through the Pope, um, to the, the diocesan bishop. And then he in turn can give a certain share of his authority to the priests that govern parishes in his diocese. Um, there have been other theological opinions about that. There has been the opinion, um, which has in fact been taught recently by a, a certain document of the Second Vatican Council, Lumen Gentium. Um, there is an opinion that um, the bishops themselves also receive their authority directly from Christ upon their Episcopal consecration. Um, and I think that this issue was treated in our series on the crisis in the church by uh, Father uh, Marro, uh, Tranquilo, uh, I'm messing up his name right now, but Don, Don Tranquilo, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. My apologies uh, to him if he's listening to this. Um, <laughs> so uh, I believe that he treated a, a, of that issue in, in detail, and we can't really spare the time for it now, except to say that it's, it's not really the traditional view and Pope Pius the uh, 12th did um, emphasize that all Catholics should hold that that even the authority of bishops comes through the Pope um, okay. but but that's not so much a, a question of apologetics as as uh, a question of theology so theological study yes yeah. yes okay uh, and then the fifth fifth attribute we'll look at is uh, infallibility. Again, another topic that we've looked at in, in some detail in the crisis mm-hmm. series, but um, how would we treat this here today, Father? Sure. Um, perhaps the best thing that we can do within the limits uh, of this, this one episode is to define infallibility and then to explain why the church must be infallible um, without going into all of the details and nuances and, and, and we certainly can't answer every single objection that might be raised against infallibility here, I think it will be sufficient to, to explain what it is and, and why it's there. Um, and that may be something that's not, not adequately understood even by many Catholics. Um, so first of all, we have the explanation of the Baltimore Catechism, which is that by the infallibility of the church, I mean that the church cannot err when it teaches a doctrine of faith or morals. And then the the subsequent question, um, so these are questions 526 and 527 for those who want to look them up. The the subsequent one is, um, what what do you mean by doctrine of faith or morals? Well, that refers to the revealed teaching um, that refers to whatever we must believe and do in order to be saved. 
so that's the meaning of infallibility. It's uh, an inability to err. The church cannot err in teaching a doctrine of faith or morals. Um, yeah, and the ahead. reason for that is is fairly simple. If this is the if this is the church that Christ told us that we have to belong to in order to attain salvation, then it can't lead us astray. It just wouldn't make sense for Christ to give us this institution if it's going to lead us away from heaven. Absolutely, that's that's very true. Um, and so, in fact, we can see that the infallibility of the church is an invisible attribute, which is uh, linked to the mark of sanctity and and as well as of unity. Um, if the church could lead her faithful into error, um, that would impede their sanctification um, because even theoretical errors have, have bad consequences in practice. Um, especially when it concerns what is to be believed and to be done, um, how how virtue is to be practiced and so on, um, how Christ's commandments are be, to be fulfilled. Any kind of error in the teaching of the church has uh, practical consequences that impede the sanctification of the faithful. Um, so so there is this this link between infallibility and, and the church's holiness. Um, the same could be said, and with perhaps even greater reason, of her unity, because if the church did not have an infallible teaching authority that could definitively decide uh, doctrinal questions or, or controversial topics, um, then there would be a tendency within the church for opinions to diverge and diverge more and more with time to the point that um, you no longer have unity of, of faith and worship. Um, so, the we see that infallible infallibility is necessary uh, for the church socially to maintain these marks um, of unity and holiness. Um, we can also say, though, that infallibility is something that is necessary for each and every individual member of the church in order to um, be able to give the assent of faith um, to the teachings uh, of the church. In order to be able to believe them with a faith uh, which is firm and unshakable, um, which is an, indeed the only faith which is worthy of of God, um, if God says something to us, um, His word is absolutely certain. There can be no reasonable doubt about what God says because He can neither deceive nor be deceived. Um, but the problem is that um, God does not reveal. Uh, everything that he wants us to know about himself to each and every one of us directly. Um, I think that's something that the the um, the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, said. Um, he was not not a believer, not a good Catholic, that's for sure. Um, and I think he had this complaint about God. You know, if if God wanted to reveal something about himself, why wouldn't he just reveal it to each and every one of us in particular? Um, well, sorry, Rousseau, that's, that's just not the way that God works. Um, that would be perhaps too easy. <laughs> and in fact, yeah. God loves to give to, uh, to men a participation in his own causality. Um, that's why, for example, to, for the sanctification of men, God doesn't just directly sanctify each and every one of us. Um, but, but rather he does so through the ministry of men. That's why he established, you know, for example, he gave the power of, of forgiving sins to his apostles. Um, so rather than souls praying individually to God and, and directly receiving pardon, rather they're supposed to go to the ones to whom our Lord said, um, you know, receive the Holy Ghost whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. So God loves to work through the 
through the intermediary of, of human ministers. Um, that's true for the sanctification of the faithful, but that's also true um, for their instruction in the faith. Um, however, um, as, I, as I already said, the virtue of faith is such that um, it, it requires that we be able to um, give a full and unwavering assent to a certain doctrine as being truly the word of God. Um, now, how are we going to do this if the, the kind of human chain of transmission by which that doctrine is communicated from God to us, if that chain is, is unreliable? Um, that is to say, um, you know, I might be quite firmly convinced that whatever God says is true, but how do I know that the human messengers who bring to me God's word are conveying it faithfully? If I don't know that, if, if, if they're not given some kind of special divine assistance that would prevent them from erring, um, then the most that I can give to their message is an ascent of human faith. That is to say, um, I think that probably you are correctly transmitting the divine message, but at the end of the day, I'm not really sure. Um, so what is needed is that those, those ministers that God has chosen to bring to us divine revelation, be protected, um, by a special gift or charism, which prevents them from erring. And so that, that infallibility of the church's teaching authority is the necessary condition for the church to be able to mediate to us divine revelation. Um, we don't receive revelation directly from God. We receive it through his ministers and we receive it um, intact, uh, uncorrupt, uh, exactly as it issued from, from God himself, um, thanks to this charism of infallibility, which prevents any error from creeping into the transmission of revealed truth. Okay. And Christ himself, I mean, promised that the church would be infallible, you know, saying that the Holy Ghost was going to be coming and he's going to teach you all truth. This is you know, several times throughout the scriptures, throughout the writings of, of the apostles, we we hear that our Lord is promising this exact thing. That's exactly right. So, um, you know, human reason demonstrates the necessity that there be some kind of infallible teaching authority, but also we have our Lord's word for it, as you say. Um, he promised to send the Holy Ghost uh, upon the apostles, and it's understood to their successors as well. Um, saying that he will remind you of also all things whatsoever I have told you, and he will lead you into all truth. Um, so we, we have this promise of the assistance of the Holy Ghost um, who will not forsake, forsake the church, and our Lord himself has promised to be with the church to the end of time. Um, that implies his continued assistance, and certainly one of the ways in which our Lord assists the church is to prevent her from erring in teaching his doctrine. Sure. And, and like you said at the beginning of this part, there's there's plenty more that we could talk about this. We could do five, six, 20 episodes just on infallibility, um, sure. but we're going to cut it short here. And there's there's more in the notes that we are uploading to uh, sspxpodcast.com as well, if you want to look at some more of that. But let's go ahead and keep going, Father, on the next attribute, uh, which is sure. indefectibility. Sure. So yes, indefectibility. Um, this one is pretty simple to comprehend. It simply means that the church uh, will never be destroyed, never cease to exist, and will never be substantially changed so as to be something different from what Christ had established her uh, as being. Um, so she will never lose any of her essential marks or attributes, um, and she will continue her mission faithfully until the end of time. 
Um, we already quoted some some texts of the New Testament which established this indefectibility. Um, our Lord founded the church upon Peter, um, saying, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And he adds, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So um, that's a clear um, indication that the church is indefectible because the gates of hell will never prevail against her. Um, sure. Likewise, he promised to be with her until the end of time. So it's it's very clear. I mean, the, the easy follow-up question to that, though, Father, is there are all kinds of errors being taught by churchmen within the church. How does this not mean that the church has, uh, has defected? Yes. Well, <laughs> this is why uh, to answer these objections, it is necessary to go into a little bit more detail on uh, infallibility um, so that, that any objection against infallibility would also be against uh, indefectibility. That is to say, um, you say that the church is infallible, cannot err, but look at these errors that are happening now. That would mean that um, either the church never was infallible or that the church was infallible, but she's lost that property. And so that's a defection. Um, so the objection, the objection would cut against one or other of those two attributes. Um, and in order to answer these kinds of objections, especially those that deal with infallibility, it's necessary to be a little bit more precise about the conditions for the exercise of infallibility. Um, and in order to explain that, it's, it's good, first of all, to distinguish um, infallibility from certain other um, things that are that's, that sound similar, um, such as inspiration and inerrancy, um, because infallibility is a purely negative charism, um, which is not operative all of the time. Um, infallibility only is operative, only engages, so to speak, under certain circumstances, um, which are fairly well-defined. Um, and so very often, the objections that are placed against the church's infallibility come from uh, an exaggerated understanding of what it means, as if, it, as if uh, every member of the church's hierarchy um, were infallible, or as if uh, the Pope himself, who is infallible, were always infallible in everything that he says and does. Um, so without perhaps going into too much granular detail, um, we can at least quote the Baltimore Catechism, which gives us a helpful starting point for understanding this teaching. Um, so the Baltimore Catechism says that um, the church teaches infallibly when it speaks through the Pope and bishops united in general council or through the Pope alone when he proclaims to all the faithful a doctrine of faith or morals. So there um, you see, first of all, that the subject itself of infallibility is restricted um, when we say that the church is infallible, what we mean is more specifically the Pope and bishops united with him. Um, and so not any individual bishop, um, the bishop of this or that diocese can very well uh, commit errors at any time in his teaching. Um, there's no moment in which he on his own is infallible, um, but it's rather the Pope who's infallible um, or the bishops when they are united to the Pope. Um so that's the first limitation, is that the subject of infallibility is, is limited. Um, but secondly, the conditions for its exercise, and this is clarified by the question that follow, follows in the Catechism. So what is necessary that the Pope may speak infallibly or ex cathedra? Um, the answer 
is that uh, in order for the Pope to speak infallibly or ex cathedra, he must speak on a subject of faith or morals. He must speak as the vicar of Christ and to the whole church. And thirdly, he must indicate by certain words, such as we define, we proclaim, etc., that he intends to speak infallibly. Um, so, so we see that um, there must be um, the, the proper object that is to say, if the the Pope wishes to make a statement to the entire church on, uh, I don't know, the, the weather that he expects to come the following day, um, that doesn't belong to the domain of faith and morals. So it's outside this, of the scope of, of uh, the object of infallibility, um, which we can discuss in further detail in, in just a little bit. Um, so first of all, it has to have the right object, uh, which is primarily um, a truth of faith or morals. Um, and then, uh, there must be, um, the proper audience, so to speak, that is to say that the Pope is addressing or the Pope and bishops and council, they are addressing the entire church. Uh, it's not a question of a provincial council or of a decree of the Pope that only concerns one diocese or something like that. Um, and then finally, and most importantly, the Pope has to, uh, speak, uh, has to speak, um, precisely in his, um, in his quality of being the successor of St. Peter, the head of the universal church, and using the full weight of his authority to uh, bind the faithful, all of the faithful, irrevocably to give their consent, their, their unwavering consent to what he teaches. Um, and it's specifically this intention of binding definitively all of the faithful um, to believe a certain thing um, without hesitation, um, that intention is usually lacking. Um, that's why the engagement of infallibility by the Pope or even by, by, you know, church councils, um, it's, it's something that happens only at very precise moments, um, and relatively rarely. Okay. So you were talking about the object of infallibility, the, the, yes. the primary object being what the teaching of, of faith and morals. Uh, exactly. So, and, and specifically, uh, doctrines or truths of faith and morals, which have been revealed. Um, so, so which are contained in the deposit of revelation, um, which was closed with the death of the last apostle. Um, that is the primary object of infallibility. Um, there is also a secondary object of infallibility, which, which interestingly enough is not spoken of in the Baltimore catechism. Um, you tend to find treatment of the secondary object of infallibility only in uh, manuals of theology, for the most part, um, because it's a little bit more complicated, more nuanced, and there's also a little bit less agreement as to what exactly it is. Um, briefly, the secondary object of the church's infallibility would be um, those things which are so closely connected with the deposit of faith that they must also be known uh, or accepted with, with absolute certainty. Um, otherwise, um, that would endanger the, the revealed truths themselves, which are somehow connected with this secondary object. Um, that could be, uh, for example, a dogmatic fact, such as the legitimacy of a certain pope or council, because imagine if you start, for example, calling into question whether, uh, let's yeah. say, Pope Pius IX was a legitimate pope or not, that would have as a consequence that you question also the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, 
um, or of papal infallibility, things that he proclaimed uh, using the charism of, of papal infallibility. Those are truths of faith that are to be believed without hesitation. But if it were possible uh, to you know, reasonably doubt or call into question the legitimacy of that pope, uh, that would also undermine the certainty of the dogmas that he proclaimed. And sure. so that's how certain other truths or, or even facts of history um, have to be, um, let's say, they have to be able to be affirmed with certainty in order to support the revealed truths that are connected to them. Um, and the church herself has the power um, to infallibly declare any truth um, who's, which must be affirmed in order to safeguard divine revelation itself. Um, so that would be a dogmatic fact, like what I just mentioned. Also, certain theological conclusions. That is to say, truths of theology, which are drawn from one premise that is divinely revealed and another which is, let's say, a, a certain and unshakable truth of human reason. Um, you'll have to forgive me because I didn't I didn't refresh my memory on on what would be examples of this. I think something like, you know, our Lord uh, Jesus Christ not making mistakes or committing errors, um, that would be a, a theological truth, which the church can teach infallibly, um, which proceeds from a revealed premise, such as that Jesus Christ is God. And then there'd be uh, some truth of, of natural reason, um, like, you know, one who is is God cannot commit errors or something like that. Um, sure. and then you arrive at your theological conclusion. Um, so, so dogmatic facts, theological conclusions, those are held to belong to the secondary object of the church's infallibility. Um, then often theologians will include as well, um, disciplinary laws, liturgical laws, which are addressed to, to the universal church. Um, not insofar as they are let's say the most prudent measure possible. There can be defects in the prudence of these laws, but often theologians, uh, especially modern theologians, uh, agree that these laws um, in their essential content um, are infallible. That is to say the church can't command all of her children to do something which is intrinsically evil or um, or forbid them to or to do something which is you know necessary for salvation. Um, that is, let's say, that's a strongly held theological uh, belief or opinion that that those laws are infallible in that sense, um, as well as the canonization of the saints um, and the definitive establishment of certain religious orders. Now, with the present crisis in the church, um, there can be a lot of difficulties relating to some of those secondary objects of infallibility. Um, and, you know, we've we've answered in, in great detail this question of disciplinary infallibility in regard to the promulgation of the new mass in one of our episodes in the crisis of the church series. Um, so it's, it's simply beyond the scope of this this present episode to delve into all those difficulties. Um, perhaps it would be sufficient here to say that, um, as we saw the Baltimore catechism itself and, and other catechisms tend to speak only of the primary object of the church's infallibility, um, because there is uh, a little bit less certainty when it comes to the secondary object. And some of these things are, are simply not as clear as we would like them to be. Um, but that also means that um, we shouldn't consider ourselves to be able to find a perfect resolution to all of the difficulties that might be posed concerning the secondary object of the church's infallibility, quite simply because the church's own teaching on that subject has not yet been you know, defined with sufficient precision. Um, right. 
So very often people may be posing an objection, uh, operating upon a premise which is not certain, such as, for example, you know, we are certain that all canonizations of saints are infallible, but um, recently the church has canonized people who do not appear to be saints, so therefore the church has defected or something like that. Um, well, you know, we perhaps we don't understand sufficiently um, to what extent and under what conditions canonizations are infallible. So um, that's why often when, when answering these objections, it's, it's necessary simply to establish, first of all, um, that there can be some doubt as to the exact nature of the church's infallibility and the conditions for its exercise in regard to some of these secondary objects. That's something that uh, that struck me quite a bit when we were going through the crisis series a couple of years ago, and and that I still kind of continue to, to reflect on is that the church is not um, f- complete in all of its teachings in terms of of stretching out all of the different hypothetical situations. Um, theologians, you and I discussed a couple of years ago. Theologians have uh, debated and disagreed with each other over the centuries about what happens if we have a heretical pope. That's mm-hmm. still up for debate. We don't really know. Um, yep. uh, Catholics like to have uh, this sense that, well, the church has an answer for everything and everything is absolutely perfect. And, and we know exactly what happens if A and B happen. And in some of these more complex cases, we just don't know. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's very necessary to be able to distinguish between, between what we do know and what we don't really know. Um, to remain intellectually modest and humble. Um, And as well, um, it's important not to dwell always on a purely, you know, kind of abstract and and theoretical plane um, while forgetting, uh, (laughs) let's say, certain concrete realities or how, how divine providence has manifested itself in history. I think it's very helpful, for example, to read uh, and reread the Old Testament um, because in fact, in the New Testament, we don't really have a whole lot of history aside from the life of our Lord, which is relatively, you know, his public ministry, which is relatively brief. So we don't get to see, in fact, very much of how divine providence operates in the life of the church, just looking at the New Testament. Um, for that, you have to read books of church history and and see how the church has gone through various trials, how, you know, many members, uh, even of the highest ranks of the hierarchy, have um, you know, not always perfectly performed their, their duties. Uh, there have been, <laughs> you know, uh, I think it's St. Bede, um, one of the fathers of the church, says that, you know, often the uh, pressure that the, the, he says, the Gentiles, that is, you know, the, the world, uh, the pressure that the world and, and worldly influences exerts upon the church uh, often goes so far as to, seemingly defile the church and make it appear as if as if her divine founder had deserted her. Uh, it's a very strong statement that he makes in his commentary on the gospel of St. Mark chapter 6, um, which is to say that, um, you know, if, if we just look upon, if we just focus upon these beautiful attributes of the church in the abstract and forget that, uh, you know, they, they are incarnated in a very specific and, and human uh, reality, um, we can be kind of shocked when we look at the church today. But if yeah. on the other hand, we are familiar with the difficulties that she's faced in her history. And then as I was also mentioning, um, all of the, you know, all of the evil that God permitted in old Testament times to be fall to his, his chosen people. 
I mean, just look at the, the history of, of the kings. Uh, if you read the books of kings, almost every single king who comes, and these are the kings that, you know, God in his providence has, has chosen to rule over his chosen people. Um, presumably, they're better than all the other kings of the earth. And yet every every time there's a new king, well, guess what? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, he sacrificed in the high places or he sacrificed to, to pagan gods. Um you know, he committed all of these atrocities uh, and it's like that one after another. And it's very rare that every once in a while there'll be, oh, this, this king was actually good. And he actually did God's will for the most right. part. But he too, you know, he had these feelings also. Um, it's 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 a pretty dismal history, honestly. Um, but but um, uh, all that is to say that um, God uh, is able to accomplish his providential designs in spite of uh, an immense uh, multitude of human failings on the part even of his his ministers and those whom he's invested with the highest dignities. Um, yeah. So we shouldn't allow ourselves to be scandalized by that. We should have, have the faith to see the divine element, which is still operating in the church, even in our days, um, despite all of the weaknesses and failings of, of many of her members. It's, I was thinking of, I think it's the third section of the Psalms. Almost that whole section of the Psalms is, are, are these lamentations of why, Lord, are you letting this happen to us? What is going on? You know, you've left us, you've deserted us. It's this kind of desperate plea from, from the Jews at the time saying, what, what, what do we do? What, what's going on? And there, there is a corollary uh, there. They didn't know exactly what was going on. They didn't have the light of the New Testament yet. We don't know what's going on today. We don't have the foresight of the final judgment and, and you know, the, the return mm -hmm. of, you know, the church to its traditional teachings uh, completely. We don't know. And sometimes that's okay not to know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we have to remain in our place. And, and uh, this is part of, well, among other things, it's part of the theological virtue of, of hope. Um, that is, we hope for the means that are necessary for the salvation of our own soul in particular, but we also hope of God, um, those helps which are necessary for the triumph of Holy Mother, the church against her enemies and for the, uh, in, in our day and age, the restoration of Catholic tradition, the, the preaching of the faith and its integrity, all these things depend upon God, uh, more than upon ourselves. Um, we're insufficient using purely human means to uh, obtain the, the restoration of, uh, of the church and in, in the purity of her, of her doctrine um, and of her liturgical practice. This is something which is beyond um, our capacities. And yet the, the virtue of hope inclines us to firmly expect uh, from God that he will give the church the helps that are necessary to restore her to, to that, um, you know, state of um, prosperity, which, um, you know, she may have possessed in other times and which we hope will return to her. Yeah, Absolutely. Was there anything else you wanted to touch on before we we let you go for today, Father? Um, well, I, I don't think so. Um, thanks very much, Andrew, for your your time, your patience. Uh, I know that uh, this topic of the attributes of the church is a little bit, um, well, uh, I don't want to say confusing, but uh, it, it, there's a lot of nuance there. Um, sure. And so it wasn't always easy to navigate the uh, the notes and and find our way, but uh, no, it's good. Here we are. And if there are questions that come from the audience, of course, um, you know, I can address those at a later time. Okay, sounds good. Father, thank you so much for your time and, and uh, putting this all together for us. So we appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found.
And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.